Amen. Well, we will be announcing the winning team after the session, so stay awake at least for that, because that is coming very soon, and it'll, it'll come as a shock and a surprise to many, I'm sure. Um, all right, turn to Mark chapter 10, turn open in your notes to session 3. It's been 15 years now since the first season of The Office aired, and if it weren't for Netflix, probably most of you wouldn't have seen this show or maybe known much about it. If you've never seen The Office, I don't necessarily recommend watching it, but uh, it's likely that you've probably at least seen memes like this. Uh, You know, Instagram is flooded with Office-related memes. Um, And you've probably heard of Michael Scott, the regional manager of the Scranton branch of the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company. And, and what's clear about Michael Scott, Michael believes that he was born to lead. He was born to manage in business. He's not passionate about paper, but he's certainly passionate about having an audience to his leadership. And you can see that there from his uh, world's best uh, boss mug that he bought for himself from Spencer Gifts um, in recognition of, uh, of the high honor that he has. In, in, in this opening interview that he does with the, with the camera, it's set up as this mockumentary of uh, uh, there's a film crew inside the office of this paper company branch. He said, would I rather be feared or love? Easy. Both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. And that about sums it up. And one of the things that Michael Scott loves is he loves when the camera is rolling. And, and, and it's almost like the camera is another character in the show. They, they, they shoot scenes where they're looking through the blinds, looking into offices. But, you know, people act differently when, when they're aware that they have an audience that they're wanting to make an impression on. And so in, in one scene, the, the, account, the accountant Oscar comes in and, and informs Michael that his nephew is running in a race and it's for raising money for charity and would Michael want to support and you could tell ordinarily he would have come up with some excuse and not paid anything for it. But the cameras are right there. And he wants to look good in front of whatever audience might see this. And so he looks at the, the contributions, the names that people have you know, put down amounts. And he's like, a dollar? Really? And he, and he, he commits to $25 that he's going to put down toward charity to support uh, the efforts that Oscar's nephew's uh, doing. And so later on, he has a conversation with Jim. He's like, you know, you guys only, only paid like a dollar or a dollar fifty. And Jim's like, yeah, you, you know that's per mile, right? <laughs> and he's like, what? And so he, take your amount and multiply it. I think it was like 16 miles that, uh, that Oscar's nephew was going to be running. And that money adds up quickly. And all of a sudden, Michael realizes uh, what he has committed to. Uh, this, th- th- this show is an adventure in the obnoxious. And uh, Michael, in his kind of self-absorbed condition, is often unaware of the, of the impact that he has on the people around, around him. And that makes for some of the most cringeworthy scenes. Um, there, there's one episode where he wants to impress the new temp, uh, Ryan, who's there. And, uh, and so he takes him in and he says, All right, go along with me, man. And he brings in the receptionist, Pam, and... and he, 
introduces the concept that they're downsizing the office and fires her on the spot. And she starts breaking down in tears, crying. And, uh, and then he says, gotcha! Ryan was in on the whole thing. And he just is staring down awkwardly, you know, just in the horror of what's happened. And she's like, you jerk. You know, just, he, he just goes right for the moment for what's going to get the attention and is oblivious to the impact that that has on the people around him. You might call it the Michael Scott School of Leadership. But, you know, Jesus is going to introduce us. He's going to take us into his own school of leadership in this passage. And it is radically different from what you find showing up in the office. It introduces the concept of servant leadership. And he does so to a, to a couple of men who appear to be just as oblivious as those who show up at the Scranton branch of the Dunner Mifflin Paper Company. And so let's read this together. Mark chapter 10, and we'll start in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Not, not because of the inappropriate requests they've just made, but because they, they were trying to work a side deal with Jesus without the rest of them there. And so they're upset. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. One Final time, 
Jesus tells his closest disciples what he's about to face in Jerusalem. He's walking ahead of them, and those following behind, they're both amazed and afraid at his determination. He's set his face like flint to go to the city that's going to mean his end, and his descriptions of what's going to happen there, they're becoming more specific, they're becoming more vivid, and they're becoming more humiliating. He says, they will mock me and they will spit on me. I mean, can you imagine this? I mean, sometimes we exercise such little restraint over the smallest offense. What would you do if somebody spit in your face? Jesus says, that's coming my way. And they will flog me and they will kill me. And it's in this context, when these words have barely left Jesus' lips, that James and John come to him and say, hey, Jesus, uh, we want you to do something for us. We want you to grant that when you're in glory and the camera's rolling and the spotlight's on you, can we be on your right and on your left? They, They figure now's a good time to put in their request to be you know, part of the top members of his cabinet, to be part of the ruling elite with him. And pride makes you oblivious in this way. If you're just kind of inside of yourself and just caring about you and caring about what people notice about you, you, you tend to not be in tune with what other, other people are saying, how they're affected, how they're hurting. It's like you're just in your own head. And you're just thinking about the next sentence that you're going to say. And they, they might have just shared some detail. It's like their, you know, their, their best friend is sick or you know, their, their, their grandma just died or whatever. And it's like you just move right past that onto whatever it is that you're interested in talking about. Because you like to hear yourself and you don't realize how obnoxious that is. But by the way, you know, the request of James and John is not that different from some of the ways that we tend to pray and plead in the midst of our worries. We just want God to just, God, help me to not fail. God, just make me somebody great, please. Missing what he's up to in our lives, wanting us to, wanting him to put us in a place of glory. And Jesus says, you, you don't know what you're asking. You able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they're like, Yeah, you know, uh, that's kind of a weird metaphor, Jesus. Don't really know what you're getting at. But yeah, we can drink the cup. What's inside that cup? We want that too. We'll take that. You see, Jesus' place of glory was on the cross. And on his right and on his left were thieves. He's saying, you have no idea. To share in my glory is to share in my shameful death, which is the prerequisite for my glorification. I'm going to come back to that cup of suffering in the end, but these guys need to be broken of their self-confidence. And the rest of the disciples, when they overhear this, it becomes a teaching moment for Jesus. And so he says in verse 45, the Son of Man came... Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Right? That, that's the purpose statement over Jesus' life. Right? Why did he come into this world? And even that, that's an interesting way to put it. Because we, we didn't come into the world. We started to exist in the world, right? You were conceived. You were born. That's the beginning of your life. But Jesus has this pre-life before he's born as a human being. He always has been. He always has been in glory, in, in perfect happiness and fellowship of the Trinity for all eternity. But he, he came into this world. He came into this humbling state. He came to serve and to give his life, to spend it as a ransom. That, that's the mission behind the incarnation, why he's lowered himself. And his life on this earth was one perpetual cross leading to the end. I've heard uh, my friend Matt Mason give this illustration from the, the film, The Last Emperor. And this story follows the, the last emperor before the Cultural Revolution in China. And there's a, a, a child who is chosen to be emperor. And so he is pampered from the very beginning. He's raised in all the comforts. He has all these servants who wait on his every need. And during his teenage years, his brother comes to visit. His brother's a commoner. And just gets to see this lifestyle that he's been living. And he asks him, what happens to you if you do something wrong? I mean, is the... the can they even see you do something wrong? And he says, when I do something wrong, the servants get punished. And he takes this vase, it's this precious artifact that goes back to the Ming dynasty, and he breaks it. And the servants are all horrified when he does that. And the next thing you, you can overhear is a servant being taken and beaten to death. Right? This is what it looks like for the servants to be beaten for the transgressions of the king. But the whole story of the gospel is that the king has come to be beaten for the transgressions of the servants. That's why Jesus is here. And so Jesus asked James and John here, what do you want me to do for you? We saw him ask Blind Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? But most importantly, he asked his father, what do you want me to do for you? And he took it all the way to the end. It was his mission. And the question I want us to think through this morning is, what is yours? What are you after in life? What are you trying to get done? What's your agenda and how you relate with people? What... You know, what you'll pursue, decide what's worth your time. Because Jesus says there's really only two options. You're either living for yourself or you're living for God's work in others. You're either here to be served or you're here to serve and spend your life until the balance is empty and all the treasure has been stored up in the world to come. The, the, the challenge is that we, we're trained to assume that life is supposed to, to benefit us. And that just feels so normal. It's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, Gabe trying to argue whether or not water's wet. It's like, of course water's wet. It just feels so normal. And, and, and a fish doesn't know that water's wet because the fish is swimming in it all the time. 
And we've been swimming in this assumption that life is about us. But, you know, it hasn't always been this way. There was this seismic shift in the 20th century from this emphasis on your social responsibility, on what, on what you owe to other people, on why you were put on this planet to fulfill some larger purpose, and now self-fulfillment has been placed at the center. The focus was no longer on what I can do to play my part, but what government can do for me, what people can do for me, what the opportunities that are in front of me can do for me. I mean, could you imagine how this would sound today if somebody said something like this? Ask not what your country can do for you, but, but what you can do for your country, right? That was told to teenagers once. And it just sounds so strange in our ears. Kennedy said that in 1961, and that was probably the last year that such a statement would make sense to American ears. But we tend to live with this motto that reverses this. What, what can people do for me? And our functioning understanding is, I, I, don't, I don't deserve to be inconvenienced. To have my plans changed on me. And yet into this setting, Jesus introduces the model of a slave. Someone who has suffered the death of a slave has triumphed and transformed slavery. And when you're a slave, you, you don't get to be your own. You don't get to determine your schedule, right? The master does. The slave doesn't get to say, hey, I've worked pretty hard today. It's your turn now. I'll show up later. But behind this same assumption that led James and John to blurt out the demand, we, we've gone through enough at this point. It's time for us to just get to sit in the glory. And this kind of thinking will damage God's calling in your life. Tim Challey says, the simple fact is, you are not the point of your life. You are not the star of your show. The cameras aren't rolling. If you live for yourself, your own comfort, your own glory, your own fame, you will miss out on your very purpose. God created you to bring glory to Him. And He says, productivity is effectively stewarding my gifts talents, time, energy, and enthusiasm for the good of others and the glory of God, right? What's going to get that from you this year? Your, your gifts, your talents, your time, your energy, your enthusiasm. And think about that, that that's something to be stewarded, that, that you, you have this ability to be passionate about something, excited about something, to be all there. Who gets that from you? Is it just the settings and the people that serve you and so you'll show up all there? And if it doesn't seem to do much for you, it's like, I'll come and I'll bring 25% at best. But you're not going to see much of me otherwise. I'm going to be mostly absent, even if I'm physically here. All right, think about this. Does the word serve or the word deserve characterize how you see your place in life. I'm here to serve or I'm here to make sure I get what I 
deserve. I mean, my realization and you know, being a parent has just made this more clear to me year after year is selfishness comes so easily for me. I just can toggle into the mindset of what I deserve, what I should or should not have to deal with right now, how they should or should not be acting and responding, what I shouldn't have to handle after a long day. I mean, we we just go into that mode so easily. It's part of that flesh that needs to be crucified. We resist inconvenience, anything that overrides our preferences. We live with this assumption that people are supposed to work for us. God's supposed to work for us. You know the kind of the phrase you had one job. You see some of these things posted online. You know, let me know when you see it. You had one job. Yeah. It's very effective right there. Uh, first name, last name. I don't know who was supposed to put in that information. I'm more curious as to what does it mean to be a dentist assailant? You know, this is a suspect in a dentist assault. Uh, Dental care gone wrong right there. Uh, You got this one right here. Do not stack. I don't think that... uh, It's kind of like Jude Tillier missing the fact that they said do not uh, shoot fireworks on the campgrounds. Um, And then this one. This one's great. The job is well done. <laughs> That's ironic. It didn't make it inside the fortune cookie uh, there. Uh, we can respond to life in the same way. It's like, people, you had one job, and it was to serve me. God, you had one job. You were just supposed to make this life a lot easier. And when that doesn't play out the way that we want, that's when we complain. That's when we get upset. That's when we get angry or impatient Right, do, you, do you live in your family with this posture of, I am here to serve. That's my role in this family. Or is it, I, I need to make sure I get what I deserve. I need to make sure I get the respect that I deserve from the people in my family. I need to make sure I can get time to myself. Oh my goodness, can I just have my own room and my own space and just do my own stuff and just be able to, to withdraw there and nobody's going to interrupt me? Is that, is that how you live in your household? Are you aware that God's put you there with a mission to serve people who are not you? To do things that might not benefit you but they benefit the people in your life. They serve your siblings. You include them in what you're doing. You find a way to enter into their interests and their world. You, you see dishes and you realize they don't mysteriously disappear out of the sink. Somehow the dishwasher gets unloaded. How's that happen? I don't know. You may have never tried it. Right? How does laundry actually get processed? The God's put you in your home to serve. Do you only fight for what you deserve? What you feel like you need to get? Is that how you relate at school? It's like, I, I, I deserve to be treated more fairly from this teacher. Therefore, if I fudge a little, cheat a little, then it's reasonable because obviously I'm not treated the way that I should. I'm just here to kind of do the bare minimum stuff and get by. I'm not really here to be productive, to help out. 
to serve those that are around me? Is that, is that how you approach your, your friendships? It's like when, when, when friendship is something that adds to your life, makes you feel accepted, makes you feel like there's somebody out there who understands you and gives you a good time, then you're in on it because it's serving your interests. But when it gets hard, when it gets awkward, when you have to have challenging conversations, when you're not sure how to interpret some of the things that they're doing, then it's like, okay, I'm done here. And this is just, this is too inconvenient and and too much to manage. And I'm just ready to move on. Right, if, if, if some of you, you, have, you go to work, you're employed, you, you, you got places where you got to show up for the job. And you can go in there with just this mindset of this job exists for me, it exists for my paycheck, and whatever I need to do to just make sure I don't get fired and get paid on time, I'm going to do that. But I'm not going to have this posture that I am here to serve the people I work with, to serve the customers, to serve those who own this business, to help them further it and make it better. Your sports teams, you on those to just get the place and the rank and the position that you feel like you deserve? Are you there to serve those around you? What are you after here? Right? To, to be a believer means we've abandoned the rich young ruler's ethic of what we think that we deserve. Grace has broken us of it and threaded us through the eye of a needle. We know that what we deserve is judgment. We know that what we deserve is hell. And Jesus came and took hell for us to lavish us with kindness that we do not deserve. And then he says... You do the same. That's going to define your posture toward others. James and John assumed they deserved the place of glory, and Jesus called them to take the place of being a slave of all, of seeing that He is the Master. And so they don't need to be in situations trying to fight for what's going to serve them, which means they don't have to be slave to people's opinions. I mean, when, when you're trying to serve Jesus and you're not trying to serve you, then, then there's something that's wonderfully freeing about that because you're not always caught up in, in the perceptions of others. I mean, I love the way that Paul says in Galatians 1.10, those at LCC Youth, we'd studied through Galatians. He says, if I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And when Jesus is our master, we're, we're not a slave to what people think. We don't have to fight to be impressive. God has assigned us our place. And if it feels lowly now, if it seems humble now, it's because we're waiting for the day when he will lift us up in joy. That's what Jesus says in Luke 14, verse 10. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. It reminds me of the story of a missions conference in London that took place in the 20th century. It was a a member of the cleanup crew named Doug was sweeping the steps around midnight. And there was an older gentleman who approached him and asked if 
This was where the conference was being held. He said it was, uh, but everyone had already gone to bed. And this man was dressed very simply. He said he was attending the conference. And Doug said that he tried to find him a place to sleep. He led him to a room where about 50 people were bunked down on the floor. Right, So whatever conditions you've been having in your dorms uh, this weekend, this is, this is a lot worse, right? 50 people, one room, sleeping on the, on the floor. And the older man didn't have anything to sleep on, so Doug laid down some padding and a blanket. He offered him a towel for a pillow. The man hadn't eaten anything that day, so they shared, a, a, you know, they each had a bowl of cornflake cereal, and they talked about what God was doing in their lives. The next morning, the conference leaders came to Doug and said, don't you know that the man that you put on the floor last night was Francis Schaeffer? He's the main speaker for our conference. We we had an entire hotel room set aside for this, right? So Doug had no idea that he he was sleeping on the floor next to one of the most influential leaders of the 20th century. But he was somebody who was content to take the lowest place. It might not look like that for us, but it will push us into settings that our, our pride tends to avoid. It will lead us into circumstances that don't do anything to highlight us, but actually we, we, it puts us in risk of embarrassment. It puts, it puts us in risk of failing, but I'm not worried about that because I just want to serve. And so I'm not going to avoid things that I might not excel at. It's like, I don't want to try that because what if, I, what if it comes out flopping? What if it looks lame? Yeah, what if it serves? Even if it's not 100% amazing. Maybe that's something that God has called me to do. There's something about service that always requires an exchange, a substitution, a laying down of certain things in order to take up others. That's the way that Jesus talks here. I've, I've, I've come to give my life as a ransom. It's a payment. It's a payment in exchange of something. When you go to pay for something, it's like you, you, you take out your money and you spend it and you lose it and you give it in place of gaining something else. And Jesus says, I've come to, to spend my life, to substitute it in the place of having my people in my presence. And all service does this. There's something you substitute for other people. Paul Miller, who wrote that book about the J-curve, talks about this concept of substitutionary service. And the way that he introduces it, he tells a story of when his, his wife's dream had always been to, to live having a little bit of a farmland and some animals. And so they eventually moved out to a place that allowed them to do that. And they got uh, one sheep named Ed. We learned about Ed the horse a couple days ago, right? This was Ed the sheep. And a, and a cold front was coming through. And, and so they were wondering, is, is Ed and the other animals going to be okay? And so he, he thought, you know, Ed's got a pretty thick uh, coat there of wool. So I think he's going to be just fine. We tend to use wool when we're trying to cover ourselves. Uh, but he, you know, he called an animal specialist, and he says, "Well, as long as they have shelter, they'll be okay." And so he, you know, they 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 built, uh, made sure the shelter was available for them. And and late at night, his wife looks at him. And he says, and she says to him, 
do you, do you think Ed's okay? And he's thinking, I, I think Ed's okay. <laughs> and she said, could you go check? And so he, he you know, he knows that there, there's, there's a foot of snow out there already. I don't want to go check on this dumb sheep. But he said this, this isn't complicated. I can substitute my warmth for her worry. I can exchange being comfortable, being cozy right now, if it means I relieve a burden from her. Do, do, you, do, you, do you see that? God's doing that through you. The things that you lay down, the difficulties that you embrace, they're not meaningless. They're, they're, they're producing real good in people and real good for you in all eternity. And eventually, John, the son of Zebedee, the son of thunder, who wanted the shock and awe and glory, he got this point. He would later write to the church, 1 John 3.16, Jesus laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Jesus calls us to follow him down this road. We follow him into suffering. He tells them and he tells us, you will drink the cup. This is something that you will taste. Carl Truman writes, what is the Christian believer to expect from life? Health, wealth, and happiness. Is that how God shows his favor and and grace? That's what the rich young ruler thought. That's certainly what a theologian of glory would assume. If, If God is good to me, then he will give me all those things I most want. The values and expectations of a theologian of glory are those of the world around. And listen, we live in a time where people have very high expectations for life for what it should feel like, for how soon it should deliver, for, for the, the kind of standard of living that we should be able to have. And, 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 and realize, you know, entitlement, it doesn't have to look like, you, you know, you expect to be a millionaire and you expect to have all those servants and eunuchs waiting on you like they did on the last emperor. It just, it just means that, that you, 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 you want life to be very easy. And so you are surprised and you are, you are a little bit offended whenever you have to encounter difficulty. Whenever things don't go your way. And that becomes disorienting. And Jesus asks James and John if they can drink this cup and to be baptized with the baptism he is to undergo. And in one important sense, he will do that alone. He will be immersed in the waters of judgment and he will drink the cup of the wrath of God for my sin and for yours. And we will never have to taste what was in that cup because it's empty. But there is a cup that Jesus calls us to share. And I cannot, I cannot teach you enough about this because again, this is something that doesn't show up in your social media feed. That suffering is a normal feature of life in a fallen and broken world. 
and is a normal place that God lovingly sends his people into when he is at work in their lives for his purposes and for his glory. And, and, and Jesus is trying to train these men with all their false assumptions and skewed understanding of what leadership looks like and what it means to be influential, he wants to shape them into the normalcy of suffering, to not get thrown by it, to, to, to realize the, the world is out of balance. And so if life plays out for me in a way that just doesn't feel fair, it just feels unreasonable, I shouldn't expect anything different than this. Is a servant above the master? If they called the master names and they spit in his face, do I think that I should get some better deal out of this? He tells them that they will drink the cup. And so Peter, you know, he showed up at several moments in these stories these past several days blurting out the first thing that came to mind and so often misfiring, uh, he eventually gets this. He says, 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be, glo be glad when His glory is revealed. A Christian music artist Michael Card describes his relationship with this New Testament scholar named William Lane. I quoted from him in my first session because he's written an excellent commentary on Mark. And he talks about, you know, being a college student and William Lane was one of his professors. And he was just was this towering figure, this tall man, this influential, impressive scholar. And there was something inside of Michael Carr that just was hungry to be taught and mentored by this man. And so he, he came to him one day and he said, um, could, could I get some of your time? And without asking any questions, without, you know, explaining how busy his schedule was, he says, you know, how's about we do one o'clock every day? And, and what they would do is there was a road on campus that the two of them would walk together and talk about life and engage what was happening and process through what they were experiencing. And, and this was an ongoing relationship that they shared over decades of Michael Carr's music career, of his lowest moments, of, of times when he wanted to break down with panic. William Lane flew and, sh and showed up in a moment of need. Eventually, he gets a call from this man and he tells him, Michael, I have terminal cancer. My wife and I, we're going to move to Franklin where you live because I want to show you how a Christian man dies. At this point, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, I'm going to, I'm going to show you what it looks like to die. I want you with me. I want you with me in the garden. I want you watching. I want you praying. I want you near in this moment because I am leading you into the same place as I lead you on into glory. James and John, 
drank the cup. James was the first martyr among the, the apostles. He was beheaded by Herod in order to, Herod wanted to please the crowds and so he beheaded James. He was the first one to die. John was the last. They were on the right and the left of the, the timeline of the persecution of the church. John died exiled alone on an island called Patmos. Patmos means the crushing of me. His friends had all died. He was away from the church that he loved, but he was near his Savior. The rest of the apostles filed into the middle. Peter was made to watch his wife's crucifixion, and then he was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Matthew was burned at the stake. Thomas, doubting Thomas, trusting in Jesus to the end, was thrust through with a spear. Judas, son of James, he's also known as Thaddeus in the Gospels, which means mama's boy. He was clubbed to death. One by one. They followed their Savior down this road to the end. Jesus calls us to die. Don't just think that that's some metaphor. As there, there are young people around this world. There are high school students that are giving their physical life for their Savior. People are showing up in the classroom and they're saying, you Christian or Muslim, and they got an AK-47 or an AR-15 in their hand. That's hitting the news headlines around the world today. And we shouldn't assume that that would never be part of our story. But Jesus is including a thousand daily deaths along the way. He describes what this life looks like. I love the way that Indy Wilson puts this. He has a book titled... Death by living. Life is meant to be spent, right? Jesus came to, to serve and to spend his life as a ransom. So all of his life was being spent one moment after another, one sleepless night after another, one long journey, one time of healing the crowds and withdrawing to be near to his father and, and falling asleep in a boat during the middle of a storm because he was so tired because he had spent his last energy. One humiliating moment after another, all the way to the cross, he was dying. And he says, this is the life that I've called you through. Wilson writes this. He says, a life well lived is always on a rising scale of difficulty. This is not the way that we think. We want to strategize. How can I make sure next year was easier than last year? <laughs> How can I figure out a way to have to, to give less, spend less, have less demanded of me. The meaningful, fulfilling life transformed by the example of Jesus means that each year is harder than the previous one. Do not be disoriented by that. Right? So some of you toward the end of high school, your college years, 
are going to be a lot harder than where you're at right now. Talk to some of the college students and they'll explain. But, you know, as, as somebody who relates with a lot of them and a lot of the confusion that they experience right now, so I try not to begin with this, but at some point in the conversation, it's going to sound like, you know, those years were comparatively to right now some of the easiest years of my life. Talk to some of the saints in the back of the room who've gone before us, and they'll tell you, it only gets more difficult. And yet, in a way that does not remove the reality of that difficulty and that straining and that struggle, it only gets better. What are your hopes for this year? An easy life, more access to streaming content that you can binge, better video games that you can put your hands on? Or do you have ambitions for some hard things to do? For some comfort to abandon, to face your fears, to be led by Jesus into dying in a thousand daily ways? I love how he says that there's, there's nothing that's insignificant when it comes to serving me. He says, even, even somebody who brings a cup of cold water in my name to someone in need will not miss out on his reward. Nothing is below the people of God as they are servants of the slave king. My friend, I have a friend of mine who's, who's dying and he is in hospice care right now and it's very striking hearing from him of how much he's trying to get done before his final moment. And so he's been collecting together different writings of his. He's trying to prepare a, a couple of volumes for publication. Not because he, it's going to make one difference in his life. It's not making one moment of life easier for him. But he knows this is going to serve God's people. These are truths they need to hear. This is going to stabilize them in a confusing world that we're in. And so he is serving all the way to the end. He's not coasting. Listen, that is a life well lived. I love the way that Indy Wilson closes out his book. He says, lay your life down. Your heartbeats cannot be hoarded. Your reservoir of breaths is draining away. You have hands, blister them while you can. You have bones, make them strain. They can carry nothing in the grave. You have lungs, let them spill with laughter. If an average life expectancy of 78.2 years in the U.S., subtracting eight hours a day for sleep, I have around 250,000 conscious hours remaining to me in which I could be smiling or scowling, rejoicing in my life, in this race, in this story, or moaning and complaining about my troubles. I can be giving my fingers, my back, my mind, my words, my breaths, 
to my wife and my children and my neighbors. Or I can grasp after the vapor and the vanity for myself, dragging my feet, afraid to die and therefore afraid to live. And like Adam, I will still die in the end. Living is the same thing as dying. Living well is the same thing as dying for others. Listen, I know that sounds, it's high, it's lofty, it can, it can feel like it's, it's lifted several feet off of the, the normal places of life, but this is what we need to be captured by. We, we, need, we need to be compelled by the story and the glory of what Christ has done for us when you go into the mundane places of life this week and you want to drag your feet and you want to complain because you feel like, I shouldn't have to face this. I want you to be able to visualize your heart and your mind, your Savior saying, this is another step on the road to glory that I have you on. I, I love the little moments when you, when you guys get this. I loved hearing Daisy's testimony on New Year's Eve about serving in Mexico or just finding... You know, by some miracle, she wasn't complaining. And going back home and, and realizing, wow, that doesn't just have to happen in Guadalupe. That, that can happen in Metairie, Louisiana as well. I can have that, that same perspective. We, we, we need to be captured by the heart of the one who came to serve and to spend everything he had to have the pleasure of his father and to have us in his presence. Let's stand and sing and let's just give him the glory for that.